Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. You might not know this about me, but growing up, I was a huge Elvis fan. There was always Elvis playing in my boombox back when those were a thing. Blue Hawaii was always playing in my DVD player. My bedding was Elvis, and I even had a life-size cardboard cutout of him in the corner of my room. To say the least, I was his youngest and biggest fan, and my love for the king is what drew me to this case. According to Graceland, Elvis Aaron Presley was born to Vernon and Gladys Presley in a two-bedroom house in Tupelo, Mississippi on January 8th of 1935. You might not know this about Elvis, but he was a twin, though his twin brother Jesse was unfortunately born stillborn, leaving Elvis to grow up as an only child. At the age of 11, Elvis got his first guitar. Two years later, the Presley family moved to Memphis, Tennessee. In 1954, at the age of only 19, Elvis began his singing career with the legendary Sun Records label in Memphis. Within two years, he was an international sensation with Heartbreak Hotel, including the lyrics, Well, since my baby left me, I found a new place to dwell. It's down at the end of Lonely Street at Heartbreak Hotel, where I'll be so lonely I could die. Graceland reports that, with a sound and style that uniquely combined his diverse musical influences and blurred and challenged the social and racial barriers of the time, Elvis ushered in a whole new era of American music and popular culture. In 1957, Elvis purchased the infamous Graceland Mansion in Memphis. He bought it for a little over $102,000, which today would equal around $900,000. So he was doing pretty well for himself. It was more than 17,000 square feet with eight bedrooms and eight bathrooms. And of course, the Jungle Room, which looks exactly how you think it would and is famously mentioned in the Mark Cohen song, Walking in Memphis. Though he was wildly famous and undoubtedly rich at the time, Elvis had a humility about him. After buying his mansion, he was then inducted into the army where he served for six years, two of which were active duty and then four in the reserves. In July of 1969, after his discharge from the army, Elvis started a seven-year-long residency at the International Hotel in Las Vegas, paving the way for residency artists like Lady Gaga and Celine Dion. He did that for seven years, and by 1977, he was back in his Graceland mansion. Tragically, though, he died of a heart attack months later on August 16, 1977, when he was only 42 years old. During the course of his career, Elvis starred in 33 movies and sold over a billion records. He still holds a record for the most top 40 hits at 114 in total, which is a legendary career and exactly why they dubbed him the king. While I could talk about Elvis all day, this episode isn't about him. It's about one of the very first Elvis impersonators. A lot of people think that Elvis impersonators didn't exist until after he died, but that's not true at all. They've actually been around since the start of his career back in the mid-1950s. It wasn't until after his death that they became super popular. 
One of the most well-known impersonators was a man named Dana McKay, a Fresno, California native who moved to Vegas in 1977 to work as an impersonator full-time. He started performing in shows at Caesars Palace and later at the Dunes. The Toronto Sun reported that Dana looked like Elvis, sang like Elvis, he even had a backup band and didn't lip-sync. I'll post pictures of Dana so you can see for yourself, but he truly did look just like Elvis, even down to the way he carried himself. A friend told the Associated Press that Dana was an immediate hit and spawned scores of imitators. The impersonators started impersonating the impersonator. Say that three times fast. According to the Las Vegas Review-Times, Dana blazed a trail for future Elvis wannabes by becoming the first well-known impressionist of the king after Elvis's death. His performances at Caesars Palace and the Dunes inspired hundreds of impersonators that made Las Vegas the Elvis lookalike capital of the world. While living in Vegas, Dana purchased a home in the 3600 block of Edmond Street. He named it Mini Graceland. Zillow lists the property as having 3,900 square feet, four bedrooms, and three baths. When Dana bought the house, it was a fixer-upper, which he was okay with because he was good at remodeling. He even had a recording studio on the top floor, which featured floor-to-ceiling windows overlooking the strip. Within three years of his move, Dana appeared as 35-year-old Elvis in the 1981 TV movie, This Is Elvis. According to IMDb, though several actors portray Elvis Presley at different stages in his life, this documentary is comprised mostly of actual performance footage and interviews with Elvis, his fans, and those close to him. It's considered one of the best pieces of film on Elvis, which I can personally attest to. A review of the movie written by Charles Supin for the Las Vegas Review-Journal reported that Dana was one of thousands who auditioned for the role of Elvis. It ended up going to Kurt Russell, but Dana had made such an impression that he was given a role in the movie. The article stated, The Presley family is said to have been amazed over McKay's resemblance to Elvis in voice and manner. Dana was so good at playing the king that he was cast as the original Elvis character in the 1983 premiere of the Legends in Concert stage show at the Imperial Palace Hotel. The show is still going on today and is the longest-running and most awarded show in Vegas. At some point in the late 80s or early 90s, Dana started dating Mary Huffman, a stunningly beautiful blonde, who moved into Mini Graceland and later became a part owner of the property. Mary Huffman was born in 1944 in Oklahoma. She earned a degree in home economics education before moving to Vegas in 1980. There, she opened Encore Fashions, which specialized in quality pre-owned clothing for men, women, and children. Later, Mary became an active member of the Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce. In 1989, 45-year-old Mary was named Mrs. Nevada, as well as Mrs. Congeniality, which means that she was voted the nicest person there. According to the Las Vegas Review-Journal, the Mrs. America pageant was originally formed to honor married women and recognize their roles as wives, mothers, career professionals, and community leaders. 
The contestants range in age from their 20s to 50s, and winners of each state level go on to compete in the Mrs. America pageant. The Mrs. America winner goes on to compete in the Mrs. World pageant. After Mary was named Mrs. Nevada, she competed in the Mrs. America pageant, and when asked why she wanted to win, Mary answered, It is my desire to win this pageant to help the people of the United States become aware that Nevada is a wonderful place to live, work, and raise a family, and also to encourage women to find out the problems in their communities and be a part of the solution. Mary didn't win the Mrs. America pageant, but just getting there was more than enough for her. According to the TV show Hard Copy, Mary would often tell people that she was Dana's wife, but they weren't technically married. Her impersonator boyfriend, Dana, had girlfriends on the side, and it's not totally clear whether or not Mary knew about them. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. Dana had been married at least once before meeting Mary, and he had two children, a son and a daughter, from previous relationships. But that was fine with Mary because she too had a daughter from a previous relationship. By the early 1990s, there were too many Elvis impersonators in Las Vegas, and Dana wasn't able to work as often due to all the competition. But that was okay, because aside from being one hell of an Elvis double, he had another passion, landscaping. Dana started a business where he designed and planted large palm trees for high-end homes and hotels. He knew someone in California who grew palm trees and sold them to him at a discount price. Dana would buy the palm trees, then keep them at Mini Graceland until it came time to plant them somewhere else. In 1992, it was announced that Las Vegas and Clark County were looking to hire someone for a big job on the Strip, and Dana really wanted that job, but he didn't have the money to purchase the equipment needed to plant that many trees. So he asked his friend Tim, who owned a car place, to go into business with him. And thus, in December of 1992, Paradise Plants was born. Tim spent $100,000, $209,000 in today's money, on landscaping equipment, a backhoe, a 40-foot storage trailer, crane equipment, and more. As promising as their future looked, within five months, Dana and Tim's business relationship fell flat apart, and they were battling everything out in court. The Toronto Sun reported that in one filing, Dana claimed, In retrospect, it appeared that all Tim was trying to do was obtain my contract for trees, learn my expertise, and establish his own palm tree company. Dana and Tim were fighting over who should get the equipment, which was stored at Dana's mini Graceland. He didn't want to give up any of it, and according to the Las Vegas Sun, officers even showed up at Dana's place one day to repossess it, but Dana wouldn't let them, so it stayed at Mini Graceland. According to the Las Vegas Sun, Dana represented himself while Tim hired an attorney from Goodman and Chesnoff, a firm that was co-owned by the man who would go on to become Las Vegas's mayor. So it was Dana himself versus someone who really knew his shit. During the proceedings, Dana found a new business partner, a friend named Danny. The plan was for Danny to join Dana in his business ventures as soon as his core dealings with Tim were over. The Toronto Sun reported that Dana was confident he would win the case against Tim based on some information he had. No one knows what information that was, but what we do know is that Dana kept a manila folder with him everywhere he went. 
A detective later told the Toronto Sun about the folder, saying Dana always kept a file with him that outlined all his business, whether it was his musical endeavors, the palm tree business, his home and personal information, his life finances. Everyone wondered what was in that folder. But before Dana could ever show the courts what was inside, he was murdered. On October 7, 1993, a neighbor went over to Mini Graceland because they realized they hadn't seen Dana or Mary in a few days. They wanted to make sure everything was okay, but quickly realized that nothing was. After entering the home through an open door, the neighbor found 37-year-old Dana and 49-year-old Mary dead in the middle of the entryway. They had been shot several times at close range. According to the Las Vegas Review-Journal, Dana was shot seven times, while Mary was shot once in the head. The media called it a gangland-style execution. The Daily Mail reported that it looked like the two had just gotten back from the grocery store when they were attacked. Laundry detergent, steaks, bananas, and a box of Junior Mints were laying next to them. The steaks were now rotting beside them. When police showed up, they immediately processed the house and found that it had been broken into from the back and one room in the entire house had been ransacked. Cash and jewelry were left behind. The only thing missing was a single manila folder, the one that Dana took with him everywhere. There were no fingerprints left behind and the murder weapon was nowhere to be found. On October 7th, five days after Dana and Mary's body were found, detectives spoke with hard copy about possible motives for the murders. They said no suspects had been identified, but they did have a few theories. The first being that the couple walked in while someone was committing a burglary. The other possibility was that the murders were a hired hit. One of Dana's girlfriends told Hard Copy that on the same night she believes Dana was killed, someone in a car next to hers pointed a gun at her. She ducked down and sped away and thought that Dana and Mary's killer might be trying to take her out as well. No one knows if the two events were ever officially linked, but police did say they were looking into it at the time. According to the Las Vegas Sun, a third theory started to emerge. Rumors that Dana was involved in drug trafficking and had been hanging out with a rough crowd were spreading, and detectives started theorizing that Dana might have been killed in a drug deal gone wrong. But Dana's friend and supposed-to-be business partner Danny said that was impossible. Dana rarely even drank alcohol, let alone drugs. The drug motive was eventually ruled out after no drugs were found in Dana's house or in his system. But there were other rumors, like one about how Dana was killed over a gambling debt. Just like the others, that rumor was also found to be baseless. Just like you would expect, the double murder of a well-known Elvis impersonator and his pageant queen girlfriend killed at their Las Vegas mansion known as Mini Graceland attracted the attention of several tabloids. At the time, there was nothing more sensational. One detective told the journal, we've had psychics call us from back east, some saying that was the real Elvis. We say, no, it's not, or just thank you very much. We already knew that. <laughs> if you're currently living for that detective right now, you're not alone, but that's not even close to where the nonsense ended. Detectives also got calls from other Elvis impersonators who were worried that a serial killer of Elvis impersonators might be on the loose. 
The detectives told the journal it didn't have anything to do with Elvis or an Elvis impersonator. It just boils down to the fact that this was a double murder. Dana's daughter, who was a teenager at the time, told the San Bernardino Sun that the tabloid shows and newspapers focused on the murders made things more difficult for her. Dana's mother agreed, telling the Las Vegas Review-Journal that the rumors about gambling debts, drug use, and more were extremely upsetting. She said, there's a lot of insinuations, lies, and misquotes that I'm very upset about. There are a lot of crazy things going on, and it can be very frightening. It's a very ugly, ugly thing to have to live through. Dana's daughter had a hard time dealing with her father's death, like anyone would. The last time she'd seen him was at a family funeral. He'd brought a Marilyn Monroe impersonator as adult, and Misty said that while she and her dad hadn't been close since her parents split, she still felt the loss. She said, it really hurt because I didn't get a chance to get close to him. Misty dealt with the loss by listening to her dad's old Elvis records. On top of having to process Dana's death, let alone the sensational tabloids surrounding it, they also had to deal with the fact that the person who killed him and Mary was still out there. Detectives were still digging, but they didn't seem to be getting anywhere. According to I-8 News, detectives did look into the possibility that Dana and Mary's murders could be related to a crime that happened a few months earlier, the kidnapping of Kevin Wynn, the daughter of casino mogul Steve Wynn. In 1993, Fortune magazine rated Steve as the top-paid CEO in the nation. At the time, he owned the Mirage, which opened in 1989. It cost $620 million, which according to the Las Vegas Review-Journal was an unheard-of amount of money at the time. The Mirage was considered the town's most luxurious and glitziest resort. It was the first strip resort that was thought of as more than just a hotel casino. Steve's daughter, Kevin, worked in retail operations for the Mirage. On July 26, 1993, a couple of months before Dana and Mary were killed, 26-year-old Kevin worked out at the hotel gym and then ate dinner with her family, heading back to her casino around 10 p.m. When she got inside, she was surprised at gunpoint by two men in masks who had been lying in wait for her. According to the Los Angeles Times, Kevin's eyes were covered with cotton balls and tape. She was then forced to take off all her clothes except her underwear. Kevin later testified, I thought I'd take off my clothes and I'd be raped. I said, please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. I was shaking. I was petrified. The man took Kevin to her dining area and started photographing her, making sure to pose her in several different ways. They even put dark sunglasses on her face to make her look like she was a willing participant. When they were done taking the photos, Kevin was allowed to put her clothes back on and then she was tied up and placed in her own car. One of the kidnappers then drove her to the airport, while others drove their car to a local 7-Eleven and called her father Steve, who had just gotten home. The kidnappers told Steve to go back to the Mirage, where he was given ransom instructions over the phone. One of the kidnappers, who called himself Voss, told Steve he needed $2.5 million, over $5 million today, for the release of Kevin. He was told that if he went to the police, the kidnappers would release the photos they'd taken of Kevin nationally. 
Steve told Voss he couldn't give them $2.5 million because the Mirage's vault only had $1.45 million in $100 bills. Voss told them that that would be fine. Steve later described the money as being new, stacked like bricks. He put all the bricks into a white plastic bag, then carried the bag through the hotel to his car like a baby with his arms around it. Steve later testified, I was frightened beyond description and very confused. Your brain is jumbled. Your brain doesn't function. I knew I needed help. I felt if I used my cell phone to call for help, they could hear me and it would mean her death. So Steve did not go to the authorities. He was told to drop the money off in a parking lot at Sunny Saloon, which is a block from the Mirage. After dropping off the money, Steve got another call. He was told that he could find Kevin in the parking lot at the McCarran International Airport. Just after midnight, Steve got to the airport where he did in fact find Kevin's car. Steve later testified about approaching the car and said, After three steps, I couldn't do it. I was mortified. I called her name, Kevin. She said, Dad, is that really you? In the backseat of the car, Steve found Kevin physically unharmed. Once Kevin was safely located, Steve called the police and the FBI quickly joined the case. An agent suggested they look at call records from payphones in the area of Sunny Saloon in Kevin's condo. They wanted to see if the kidnappers had made any calls. And lo and behold, both payphones had calls to the same number in Sacramento. The calls were to a cell phone, which not a ton of people had in 1993. The fact that it was a cell phone made the number stand out, so agents looked it up and found that it belonged to a 47-year-old health club manager named Ray Cuddy. After establishing the owner of the cell phone, an FBI agent went to the airport to review security footage. They were hoping to possibly catch a glimpse of the kidnappers. After running plate scene in the footage, agents found that one of the cars just so happened to also belong to Ray Cuddy. There was no question at that point that they had identified at least half of the kidnappers. About a week after the kidnapping, Ray Cuddy was arrested at a luxury car dealership in Newport Beach, California. He was in the middle of paying $70,000 on a $183,000 Ferrari. A month later, two other men were arrested, a 22-year-old man named Jake Sherwood and a 20-year-old man named Anthony Watkins. According to KSNV, investigators zeroed in on Anthony, the youngest of the three, with the smallest role in the kidnapping. He turned on the other two and ended up taking a deal for a reduced sentence in exchange for testifying against his co-defendants. Anthony told investigators that Ray Cuddy was the ringleader. He was broke and had been borrowing money from all these people, debts that he needed to pay back. It was Ray and Jake who broke into Kevin's garage and waited for her to get home. Anthony had been the lookout watching from a nearby fast food place. In May of 1994, a federal jury found Ray Cuddy and Jake Sherwood guilty of extortion, money laundering, conspiracy, and other charges. All three men spent a good chunk of time in prison, but Anthony was released in 2000, Jake in 2010, and Ray Cuddy in 2015. According to the Las Vegas Sun, investigators were able to recover $1 million of the $1.4 million ransom. Detectives never publicly cleared any link between Kevin's kidnapping and the murders of Dana McKay and Mary Huffman. That being said, it does seem unlikely that they're related due to the personal nature of Dana's missing manila envelope and there being no ransom. But there's always a chance. 
While the investigation into Dana and Mary's murder continued, investigators narrowed down their sights to two theories, a robbery gone wrong and a hired hit. The robbery gone wrong would only include the robbery of the envelope and none of the money or jewelry that was easily accessible. As for the hired hit theory, people thought that Tim, the one Dana was battling in court, might have been involved. The Las Vegas Sun reported that around two weeks after Dana's murder, Tim was awarded all of the company's assets. It seemed like he'd be the likely person to look into when it came to the murder for hire theory. However, police found out that Tim was in Aruba when the murders occurred. Reports state that it couldn't have been Tim because he wasn't in the area at the time, but if we're talking about a theoretical murder for hire, someone certainly doesn't have to be present for it to be done. That being said, media reports do say that Tim was cleared. I don't know how, but that's what they say. That begs the question, though, who in the actual fuck would want a random envelope that should mean nothing to them, but not the valuables in the house? With Tim cleared, the case seemingly went cold. Unfortunately, this didn't come as a huge shock to many residents since back in the 90s, Las Vegas PD was notorious for not solving cases. I don't have statistics for 1993, but I do have them for 94, and they paint a grim picture of what was going on in Sin City. The Associated Press reported that in 1994 alone, there were 1,300 officers on the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Force. They had to patrol a jurisdiction with more than 779,000 people and 27 million tourists. That doesn't leave a ton of time for investigating crimes. In 1994, there were 9,421 violent crimes reported. Only 20.7% of those crimes resulted in an arrest and prosecution. That means that Las Vegas had the lowest clearance rate in the country for cities of more than 250,000 residents. Experts explained to the Associated Press that crime is difficult to control in a rapidly growing place where millions of tourists can drink, gamble, and spend money 24-7, 365. On top of all of that, the Las Vegas Review-Journal reported that by 1995, the Las Vegas police had around 200 unsolved homicide cases, Dana and Mary's case being two of them. Two years after the murders, a billboard was set up announcing a $100,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest and conviction of the persons responsible for murdering Dana and Mary. Detectives told the Las Vegas Review-Journal that they had only been getting tips about people spotting Dana out and about, like the people calling in the tips thought he was missing and not murdered. Detectives said they knew the tipsters had just seen a different Elvis impersonator, but that didn't make things any less frustrating. The reward did not lead to any arrests. For the next 20 years, the case basically sat dormant. Then, in 2008, Dana's now-adult daughter looked up her dad's name online and saw an article stating he was killed during a robbery gone wrong. She knew there was also a murder-for-hire theory, so she called the police and asked what was going on. With that one simple phone call, her dad's case was reopened. 
That same year, a detective, Detective Sherwood, told the Las Vegas Sun that in the course of a few months, he conducted a dozen interviews, traveled out of state several times, and visited a few jails to speak with persons of interest, including one who was serving a life sentence for a murder-for-hire job. Sherwood told I-8 News that there are strong indications this was a murder-for-hire plot. Detectives no longer believed the robbery-gone-wrong theory. Sherwood said someone was lying in wait for them. With as many interviews as Detective Sherwood did, one person who refused to speak to them was Tim. He also refused to comment to the media. Tim's attorney told I-8 News that the police should focus on Dana's drug connections instead of Tim, who had been cleared of any involvement. Dana's friend Danny has publicly spoken out against Tim, stating he believes Tim was responsible for the murders. Danny even brought America's Most Wanted to Tim's doorstep to get a comment, but Tim said he didn't have one. Danny told I8 News, I have no doubt in my mind, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I am positive who had done this. Dana's daughter says she also knows who killed her father. She told the Toronto Sun, My dad was telling people before he died, if something happens to me, this is the person responsible. She added, I know exactly who did it and I know the cops know exactly who did it, but he's allowed to get away with it because of his connections. The murders of Dana McKay and Mary Huffman remain unsolved to this day. Cold case detectives believe the case can be solved with help from the public. They ask that anyone with information please call the LVMPD Homicide Unit at 702-828-3521. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Dana and Mary's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. (laughs) 